This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Ronnie O'Neill III? Ronnie O'Neill III was born on July 27, 1988. He would accumulate a criminal history, including convictions for misdemeanor drug possession in 2008 and 2009, and driving with a suspended license in 2009. He had also been charged with conspiracy to traffic cocaine in 2007, but it's not clear what the disposition of that case was. Moving to 2018, 29-year-old Ronnie O'Neill and his 33-year-old girlfriend, Kenyatta Barron, live in Tampa, Florida with their two children. One child is a nine-year-old daughter who was disabled, and the other child was an eight-year-old son. We see conflicting reports about the mental health history for Ronnie O'Neill. He said that he was never diagnosed or treated for any mental illness. He had never been prescribed psychotropic medication. But later we find out that mental health clinicians initially determined he was incompetent to stand trial. Now they changed their mind at a later point, but it's really not clear what's going on here. Moving to the timeline of the crime. At 11.43 p.m. on March 18, 2018, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office responded to the O'Neill family home. They had received a call from O'Neill's girlfriend saying that she had been shot. In the background of that call, Ronnie O'Neill can be heard yelling, Allahu Akbar, which is Arabic for God is great. At 11.51 p.m., Ronnie O'Neill calls 911, saying he's been attacked by some white demons who were inside his girlfriend. He said, she tried to kill me, and I just killed her. Two minutes before O'Neill's 911 call, the police arrived. They found Kenyatta Barron lying face down on the sidewalk near her residence. She was unresponsive. Ultimately, it was determined that she had died. The police noticed there was light coming from inside the residence. It was a fire. They forced entry into the home, but at the same time, the garage door opened and Ronnie O'Neill exited the house. He strolled toward the police officers, refusing to obey commands to stop and get on the ground. He was tasered and arrested. The couple's eight-year-old son exited the residence. He had sustained stab wounds to his neck, chest, abdomen, and extremities. He was burned over 30% of his body. The first thing he said to first responders was that his father shot his mother. He was transported to the hospital and would survive. He would later be adopted by one of the homicide detectives who had been working on that case. The couple's daughter was found in the home. She was deceased. According to the couple's son, police officers, and other evidence, here's what happened during this incident. Ronnie O'Neill shot his girlfriend with a shotgun. She called 911. She exited the residence. Ronnie chased her down and beat her to death with the shotgun. He then stabbed his daughter with an axe. It was referred to as a tomahawk in one report and stabbed his son with a knife. Ronnie then set his daughter and son on fire using gasoline. Ronnie O'Neill was arrested and charged with a number of offenses, including two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted first-degree murder, first-degree arson, and resisting an officer without violence. In 2021, Ronnie O'Neill, now 32 years old, 
decided to represent himself in the double murder trial. The judge told him it was not a good idea, but O'Neill was insistent. The judge let him do it. She found that he was mentally fit, educated enough, and understood the consequences of his actions. Let's take a look at what happened in the opening argument, witness testimony, and the closing argument. Ronnie O'Neill's opening argument seemed to be inspired by the phrase vigorous defense, to which he was entitled. However, he only really brought the vigorous part. I think he left the defense part in his jail cell. O'Neill yelled his opening argument right at the jury. He was walking around the courtroom and appeared to be quite agitated. O'Neill claimed the evidence would reveal, quote, some of the most vicious, lying, fabricating, fictitious government you have ever seen, unquote. He said, I look alone, but I am backed by a mighty God. O'Neill contended that the police coached his son to lie against him and fabricated evidence. He claimed that his girlfriend attacked her two children and that he was forced to kill her in self-defense. This, of course, was consistent with his 911 call. O'Neill said, quote, the evidence is going to show that I love my children. The evidence will not show that my son witnessed me beat his mom to death, nor did he witness me shoot his mom. In fact, he didn't witness much at all, unquote. Moving to the witness testimony, O'Neill called a few witnesses on his behalf, but what really stood out in this trial was his cross-examination of his son, now 11 years old. It was through video. His son was not in the courtroom. Among other things, O'Neill asked his son, did I hurt you that night? His son responded, yes. O'Neill said, how did I hurt you? His son responded, you stabbed me. O'Neill's son indicated that he did not see O'Neill shoot or beat his mother. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey 
to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Now moving to the closing argument. During the closing argument, O'Neill's behavior was animated again, just like it was during the opening argument. This time the judge warned him about profanity and about attacking the character of the prosecutors. O'Neill shouted at the prosecutors, saying, quote, I did kill Kenyatta Barron, but I want you to tell it like it is if you're going to tell it, unquote. He claimed that he killed her after she killed his daughter. O'Neill admitted that he hit Kenyatta three or four times, but he made that admission to argue that he did not strike her the 15 to 17 times, as the state alleged. He said whoever caused the extra lacerations on her face is definitely going to pay. The jury found Ronnie O'Neill guilty of all charges after just a few hours of deliberation. The judge told O'Neill that he would have made a good lawyer in another lifetime, but she strongly recommended that he be represented by an actual attorney for the penalty phase. The next day, Ronnie O'Neill decided to allow attorneys to represent him. At the time making this video, the penalty phase has not yet occurred, although, as I understand it, the only two choices available would be the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now moving to my analysis. When a defendant represents themselves, it's referred to as proceeding pro se. It's pretty much always a bad idea. There are a number of reasons why this is the case, but just to name a few, defendants typically don't have any legal training. If they are disruptive and they're removed from the courtroom, the trial may continue without them. It creates this image where the defendant doesn't appear to have anybody on their side. And there's something unconvincing about a person saying they are not guilty. When there's a third party suggesting it, it appears more credible and legitimate. Statistically, pro se situations result in convictions more often than when a defendant is represented by an attorney. So what happened in this case? Why did Ronnie O'Neill want to represent himself? He had been represented by attorneys for quite some time. The decision to proceed pro se was only made right before his trial. Here are a few theories about what could be happening. Of course, I don't know why he actually did it. First theory, O'Neill wanted justice in this case, but he did not want to confess. In a way, maybe he was trying to help out the state. He figured he murdered two people. He might as well murder reasonable doubt and ensure his own conviction. Next reason might be overconfidence. Even though he was guilty, O'Neill was confident that his performance could convince a jury of his innocence. It's not clear why he would have this much confidence, but it's a possibility. The next reason, he did it to embarrass and get revenge on the prosecutors. We see that especially during the closing argument, there was a lot of aggression from O'Neill toward the prosecutors. Maybe it was O'Neill's way of striking back. Another possibility is that O'Neill represented himself for fun. I imagine he spends most of his time in a jail cell, not a lot to do. Walking around a courtroom and screaming at people is probably more interesting, and at least he's getting some exercise. Regardless of what penalty he receives, he will not be afforded further opportunities to play lawyer. So maybe he was just trying to fulfill a lifelong dream of acting like an attorney. The last reason he may have represented himself could be something to do with mental health. I'll talk about that in a few moments. Moving to the next question. Did Ronnie O'Neill put together a good defense? There were moments during the trial, like when he wasn't yelling, confessing to murder, using profanity, or looking maniacal, where he almost appeared like he could have been a good attorney. The judge noted as much 
as I mentioned. The problem, of course, is that he never put together a cohesive narrative. His strategy never actually made sense. Even if one wanted to look past his aggressive and bizarre mannerisms, what was the point? What was he trying to prove? His basic premise comprised three parts. He acted in self-defense, there was a conspiracy against him, and witnesses didn't see enough criminal activity to convict him. The evidence simply doesn't support his arguments. O'Neill wasn't successful at poking holes in the state's narrative. He didn't expose any inconsistencies, any deception. He spent a lot of his closing argument going over the 911 call log, but never demonstrated anything. Ronnie O'Neill may have had mental health problems. He says he didn't, but as I mentioned, mental health clinicians appear to disagree with him, at least at one point. We see some interesting statements that Ronnie O'Neill made that could indicate something about his mental state but it's impossible to know for certain. Here are a few examples. In one hearing, he told the judge about how he had been murdered a couple of times before, which is interesting considering he was clearly alive at the time he was making the statements about being murdered. He said that the Most High God told him not to use a lawyer. At one point, he mentioned how he renamed himself with a name that means more than Ronnie O'Neill III. As I mentioned in the 911 call, that he made during the incident, he said that he had been attacked by white demons that had been inside his girlfriend. As I understand it, a mental health professional will be testifying during the penalty phase, so maybe more information will come out about his mental health at that point. A mental health history could explain a wide variety of behavior in this case, but based on the available information, it appears as though the jury made the right decision. I was wondering what the jurors said to themselves after being exposed to O'Neill representing himself. The dramatic, bizarre statements, the yelling. I imagine when they first sat down with just each other, like to start the deliberations, one of them must have said something like, well, that was fun, or perhaps something to the effect of guilty, right? During his opening argument, O'Neill implied that by the time the trial was over, the jury would see who the mass murderers were in Tampa Bay. Even though O'Neill, of course, isn't technically a mass murderer, I think the jury still appreciated his statement as generally true and identified the real killer. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com